Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks for listening. The Organic Wine Podcast is brought to you by Centralis. Centralis is my winery, which I founded as an ecological winery, meaning that every decision we make, whether in the winemaking or in the business, is guided by the goal of protecting or benefiting our environment and community. You can learn more at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S-Wine.com. Please visit to join our wine club or sign up for our email list. My guest for this episode is Greg LaFollette. Just when you think you know something about wine, you meet somebody like Greg. Talking with him about wine is like having the sunrise suddenly while you're walking a path at night with only a flashlight. I apologize in advance to anyone who's trying to listen to this while doing something else because you're going to want to take notes. Even if you haven't heard of Greg LaFollette, you've probably drunk wines that he helped make. He mentored at BV in the early 90s under Andrei Chelichev. He has designed and redesigned 14 wineries worldwide and was the consulting winemaker for the University of California Davis's teaching winery. He has consulted for Kendall Jackson, starting its La Crema and Hartford Court brands. He launched Flowers Winery, turning it into a cult brand, featuring its Gravity Flow green production facility that is still considered state-of-the-art. He went on to manage wine operations at Deloach and founded Tandem Wines and has consulted on many other projects too numerous to mention. If you've been following the Organic Wine Podcast at all, it won't come as a surprise to you that with his legendary reputation as a winemaker, Greg gives preeminence to the winemaking that happens in the vineyard before the grapes are even picked. You may have heard the cliche that great wine is made in the vineyard. Well, in this episode, Greg tells us how. He discusses the three most important moments in winemaking that all happen in the vineyard. And in fact, as I re-listened, I counted at least two or three additional moments in the vineyard that he discusses as some of the most important moments in winemaking as well. And that's before he even gives a breakdown of the microbial ecological succession during indigenous fermentations and how that lends to more complexity in wine. If you listen closely, you'll find moments throughout what Greg says where he seems to talk about grapevines and people comparatively and even interchangeably. I find something profoundly meaningful in this, as it makes me feel as if Greg has come to know these beings so well that he has achieved a perspective that is not from this modern world, but recalls an ancient perspective from those indigenous groups who also knew their ecosystems with equal intimacy, a perspective of identification and equality with our non-human family a perspective of compassion and empathy. Even if you aren't working with vineyards or making wine, this episode will give you a glimpse of how much there is to learn about wine, how deep scientific knowledge enables us to listen and serve vines and ecosystems better, and how complex and beautiful our world can be the more we get to know it. But enough intro. As Greg says, the more I learn, the more I learn to shut up and listen. Enjoy. Greg, thank you so much for doing this. First of all, it's truly an honor and a real pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so excited because what little, you know, like I just mentioned, what little I've heard, you just are, in addition to having a huge reputation, you have just a wealth of knowledge to share um, that I, I, I think is really important for, you, for people to, to know about, to learn from you and to, I mean, to to have your, your mentoring um in this form, I think is just really invaluable. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for creating this format for us to talk and discuss and tell the stories of wine. Thank you. Um, and I, 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 for those who don't perhaps know your story, could you give us a little, uh, some of the highlights? I mean, there's some things I'd love to ask you about, but if you want to, you know, give us a little bit of how you arrived or, or just your life story, because it's pretty interesting. Oh, man. Uh, well, <laughs> let's see. Um, so uh, I've wanted to be a winemaker since I was 17 years old. But living in L.A., uh, it's like, you know, uh, who becomes a winemaker in L.A., right? It's it's kind of like going to rabbinical clown school. You know, no one does well, it I, anymore. I, <laughs> well, I have to stop you right there. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. And Well, um, let me know how I can help you with your journey. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love to be of assistance if I can. 
Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, I, I lived in L.A. as a teenager, and uh, uh, so uh, I basically gave up my idea of being a winemaker for something more practical. I became a professional bagpiper, and uh, I was the ship's piper on the Queen Mary, for instance, and one of two bagpipers in the L.A. Musicians Union. But uh that, I love that. Yeah, of course, that ended up not being very practical either, even though it was kind of exciting, <laughs> you know, to be a young man on the Queen Mary with a kilt. Uh, you know, I, I, I wore a kilt almost every day in high school uh, because I was the school mascot. It was the Granada Hills Highlanders. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was good fun. <laughs> that led, obviously, into... I think a, a science career, right? Oh, very logically. Yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, at any rate, it ended up not being, being very practical. So after a short stint in the seminary of the Catholic church, six kids later, that didn't take, uh, I, I, I kind of did the next easiest thing. I, I already had a degree in plant biology. And so I became a physical chemist and, uh, did HIV research at UC San Francisco right at the beginning of the HIV epidemic. And uh, boy, uh, everybody I worked on died and I wasn't prepared for that. I was a chemist and I just really wasn't equipped for, um, you know, watching all that, the mostly young people die because back then right. there never was a, and they happily lived ever after kind of thing. Right. So uh, I made a lateral transfer on staff from UC San Francisco to UC Davis and uh, was on staff at Davis first before I did my uh, uh, postgraduate work on how Burgundian winemaking techniques affect mouthfeel. And I haven't looked back ever since. Uh, I had a short uh, academic career. For instance, I'm one of the few Americans who's lectured at the University of Burgundy. Uh, very cheeky for an American to go there and lecture to Burgundians on Burgundian winemaking techniques. But they did ask me. So, uh, so, so I went. And uh, I knew there was no way in hell I was going to work on Pinot Noir because I knew where the bodies were buried, right? I, I knew that it was not called the heartbreak grape for no reason. But everywhere I went around the world, I, I got kind of pulled, almost kicking and screaming back into the world of Pinot Noir until finally I, I just kind of, I surrendered. I, I said, Pinot, take me, I'm yours. And uh, since then, I've spent a lot less money on uh, therapy uh, sessions and, and, you know, things are a lot better now. So <laughs> now that I've uh, given myself up to Pinot, it's completely, it's, it's nice. <laughs> you are at one now. Yes. Um, that's, that's, that is great. I've, there's so much in that, actually. And I, I actually do really, you know, maybe, maybe we'll come back to this at the end because I, I, I mean, I feel like some of your earlier experience there is especially at a formative time in your life must really have directed your perspective on wine and or just you know your perspective on everything um but yeah and i think it's relevant now like i mean as we are in sort of global crises one after another and and local crises that you know figuring out how what we do as winemakers fits into these things that seem so much bigger and more important um i think is a really important question to ask like and I, I mean, well, I don't know. We're talking about it now. So yeah. let's just jump right into that. What, how, I mean, yeah. I, I imagine you as a, as a young person, this gave you, made you ask some really big questions. And I know you have, you know, the background in, in seminary and then you have this, you know, you're there at the front lines of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. Like how did wine how did I mean? I know it's, it's like it doesn't even make sense to switch from wine from those statements. But how did how did how do you make it fit? Like how did you make it fit into your worldview and your your accounting at, at that time? Well, in your life? you know, I uh, I oh boy, winemaking. You know, I'm not saving any anyone's life or anything like that. But I am uh, I am helping to make people's lives better. I hope by making a delicious product that they can enjoy and celebrate life with friends and family. And uh, to me, that's kind of the, the best uh, use of my wines. And I'm hopeful that I am doing something good for the world. I'm not, you know, uh, curing cancer or anything like that, but uh, I'm doing something that helps people 
relax and enjoy life and celebrate life. And that means a lot to me, uh, especially uh, with my own friends and family to open up a bottle of wine. As you know, as a winemaker, when, when you pull that cork and open it up and pour it for your friends and family, that's your work that's gone into that. Right. And uh, my cellar, you know, uh, my house burned down last year, but before that, my cellar is filled with all of my life's work and my kids, even though they grew up working in the vineyard and winery, um, we didn't have uh, Boy Scouts or uh, or that kind of thing. We had you coming to work at the winery after school every day for a couple hours. And uh, hmm. so when a couple of years ago, when I had a stroke, I uh, my kids would come almost every day and stay for dinner. And even though I couldn't drink wine, they'd go out into the cellar and they'd pull out bottles and look at the label. And it was like turning the pages of the book of life. You know, they would mm. look, they would look at a label and say, Oh, wow, that's the, that's the vat that Lex fell, fell, quote, fell into. And then we had this huge food <laughs> fight and uh, because I use dairy tanks so that, you know, if you fall into a tank, when you're punching down, all you have to do is stand up and you don't die because you're way above the, the surface of the fermenter. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so they would look at that and, and then we bring the wine to the table and draw the cork and everyone would smell the wine and, and there would be memories of what that year was like and what that vintage did. And so for me, wine is not just a beverage it's a story of life. It's a story of who we are and what we've done with our lives and ourselves over many years. And uh, I'm hopeful. Uh, I've lost my collection of wines, but I'll just make more. And then I'll leave some for my kids to remember me and, uh, and other times that they've had with me. That kind of It's a celebration of life. Wine is really. Mm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, and, and I mean, how does it yeah, well, thank you for that. Well, that was a nice detour. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. It's a, that's a that's a cool picture too. Um, and you know, I know that you have this reputation as as uh, as a winemaker, but from what little I've learned, um, you really are grounded, you know, and started in in plant biology and and the vineyard. And yeah, I, I think that's right. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a little and, too hot out there right now, but we've all been, well, mo uh, I'm not working right now because I got to keep my finger elevated and stuff. But uh, right, yeah. right. what our listeners don't yet know is that you just got out of the emergency room for chainsawing your finger while in the vineyard. Um, how can you What happened? How did that? Well, um, you know, it was a little chainsaw and sometimes those can be the most dangerous, an electric chainsaw. And uh, mm. so uh, a tree had fallen down across our fence and we were getting uh, in our last week, I think I was in Virginia and uh, uh, actually having dinner with Lucy Morton, who's probably America's number one ampelographer in the world, actually the world, yeah, uh, since Pierre Gallet has passed away. And uh, so I had to come back. We were having deer kind of uh, chewing on our grapevines. And uh -huh. and I had a little bit of a kickback. And it just kind of ran up my uh, index finger and kind of chewed it up. So, uh, But if it had been an 18-inch uh, gas chainsaw like I normally use, it, it, I probably wouldn't have a couple of digits right now. But, wow. no, uh, uh, wine growing is, uh, is a contact sport. So I've, I've now got... <laughs> I've got uh, four fingers now that have that are kind of crooked or or bent or broken or that kind of thing from wine growing. Right, you said the bottling line accidents. <laughs> there was so many ways that uh, things can go wrong with your fingers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, let's. I, I, you know, I like to start in the vineyard. Obviously, this is the organic wine podcast, so there's that slant to that is you know really just starting there as the foundation for for wine but I, I know it, i think it's where you start and i think what i'd really love to do is get sort of technical about how viticulture translates a to wine flavor like how is there just no no distinction between wine growing and 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 yeah like that it's called wine growing for a reason not you know grape growing and then wine making it's called wine growing um Right. I've heard I've heard you talk about well, I mean any any initial thoughts about that? What what are your yeah. <laughs> I have some specific questions to ask you, but any 
thing that you have to say right away. Well, uh, it's interesting that you would bring that up because just last week uh, uh, I taught, uh, was a speaker at a seminar that was sponsored by UC Davis on how winemaking flavors originate in the vineyard. So, uh, ah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I can send fantastic. You, I, yeah, I'll send you my PowerPoint uh, presentation if you'd like. I would love that. Oh man, I would love that so much. Yeah, and I'll, I'll find a way to share it if anybody, uh, if if you're willing to let me share that with others as well. I'd, I'm sure people would love to 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 know about that. It, um, it would be my pleasure. Awesome. I I I've heard you say something close to the three most important moments in winemaking happen in the vineyard. Um, can you, can you talk about that? Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, you bet. Uh, so the three most important moments of winemaking happen before a single berry even makes it across the uh, cellar uh, threshold. And those moments are flowering, berry cell division and berry cell expansion. And I, I'm, I'm ticking those off even with my heavily bandaged finger right now. It's that kind of fun. Uh, <clears throat> um, so f- right now, uh, it's a little too hot in the middle of the day here, but my crew is going to, which is consists of my wife and, and Jackson and my associate winemaker and myself. And I, I've been out of the vineyard all morning, but, um, uh, but we'll all get out there again as it cools down is, uh, Flowering is really important because that's what defines cluster architecture. And uh, this is all a part of what's called carbohydrate repartitioning strategy, which uh, it sounds really nerdy and long, and it it actually is. But basically, the grapevine has two different modes of things it can do with its uh, carbohydrate resources. It can either do vegetative or reproductive strategy. And vegetative strategy is really important because the grapevine, that's, I mean, <clears throat> your carbohydrate resources go into making cellulose, which, which are the building blocks of uh, canes and leaves and things like that. And that's basically a one-to-one exchange. It takes essentially one gram of photosynthate to make a gram of cellulose. And uh, it's really cool because the grapevine can outgrow any opponents you know, by lengthening itself out, it makes more organelles, leaves that create even more energy for itself. <clears throat> and uh, when it throws a shoot out onto the ground, it can root adventitiously. So it can, uh, it, it can propagate uh, asexually. And uh, I know a little bit about propagation having six kids. So I just have to kind of... Not asexual, though, I take it. Not asexual, right. So that's what you want to do is you want to get it to start thinking, okay, uh, guys, it's getting a little bit hard to do all this wood, you know, ripening and, and producing lumber. So let's repartition our carbohydrate resources from vegetative strategy to reproductive strategy. And that's kind of an, an expensive uh, proposition because, for instance, to make a gram of anthocyanin, that's the color molecules to make nice color or even nice flavors like uh, what you would smell uh, um, like linalool, which is a, uh, a terpene that, that grapevines make mm-hmm. uh, to, to smell really good, like in Riesling and Gewürztraminer and some other muscatty kinds of varietals. That takes two grams of photosynthate to make one gram of carbohydrate. So why would a grapevine want to do anything so silly as to make more colorful and flavorful berries when it can reproduce already and it can out-compete its opponents and that kind of thing? Well, the answer is that the grapevine um, at some point says it's a little too tough. We're short on water or nitrogen or whatever it is that they're, they're feeling short on. So let's rechannel our carbohydrate energy into making these colorful uh, and flavorful berries so that we can attract birds to eat our berries and spread our seeds so that we can fulfill that ancient biblical command of being fruitful and multiplying, much as my wife and I've done over the years, and uh, continue on with, uh, with this form of propagation. And so everything that, that exists in nature wants to survive. And <clears throat> um, when an organism is challenged when it's stressed uh, for survival, like for instance, humans, when we're stressed, you know, when uh, whatever used to try to eat us and we'd run away from whatever would eat us, that stress response is stronger hearts and lungs 
and and muscles and uh and that's how we would survive that's our stress response so to make a world-class athlete uh is not like sitting him on an easy chair and feeding him bonbons right so you want to push and stress your athlete and then allow the athlete athlete to to rest and then go again grapevines stress response are more colorful berries rather than our you know stronger muscles and hearts and so we want to kind of be a coach of uh of grapevines and help them to achieve uh more colorful and flavorful berries uh and i mean it's the same thing with we could get into yeast uh, also have stress responses too and we might uh, into this talk if, if uh, we get into it far enough yeah absolutely so two questions before we do move forward um you were talking about that that partitioning between uh, reproductive and and vegetative you know, f the new science, well, I don't know how new it is, but, you know, recent for me uh, is learning in terms of soil health about the microbiome down there and how the vines are also using some of those carb carbohydrates to to create exudates to feed that microbiome in the soil. Is that would do, how does that fit into that partitioning as well? Well, it's very important and uh, conventional uh, viticulture does not really pay attention to uh, the biomass in the soil, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, I'm, a lot of people still make really good wines from uh, conventional farming, but I am a, uh, a practitioner of organic farming and biodynamic farming. And so for me, uh, the biomass, the rhizomes that move through a vineyard actually not only help to make the soil and the vines healthier, uh, those particular aspects also help an entire vineyard to communicate with each other. So vines from one end of a vineyard to another actually communicate through their roots and the, and the biomass that exists and allow, like if one part of a vineyard is under attack by uh, a pest or, or a microbe, then it can communicate to the other vines that it's under attack. And so you'd better start making compounds that help you to resist this, uh, this particular factor, a fungi or an insect or that kind of thing. Uh, plants communicate with each other and they do it through their roots and perhaps other ways that we don't even know about yet. And I, I just feel that that's really important that an entire vineyard is able to talk with itself rather than using a scorched earth policy. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're speaking about herbicides as well as probably tillage or deep tillage or regular tillage anyway. Yeah. All of the, all, okay. all the above. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now my second question was about when, when we're sort of, you were talking about seed reproduction versus the asexual sort of like, you know, what, what we use when we stick, you know, when we take cuttings and propagate vines by, you know, just rooting, sticking them in soil and rooting them or, right. or when we layer, we create a vineyard by layering a single vine out into the soil. Mm -hmm. um, wouldn't the, isn't there an advantage? And do you, I mean, do you think the vines, uh, you know, I, I don't know, think is the right word, but are they, is the, uh, another evolutionary advantage to reproducing by seed that it's genetically different. So it potentially, if, you know, as we're heading into a climatic shift, this gives their offspring a chance of being a little different and having maybe some new nuances that might give them a better chance of survival than their parent? Yeah, genetic recombination is one of the foundations uh, going all the way back to Darwin about uh, how you can adapt to environment. And uh, so that's a big deal. But we've had the same clones now for hundreds of years because of propagation asexually. And what this means is that the same clone that was there maybe in the 14 or 1500s during uh, that kind of a, a minor uh, ice age are the same yeah. ones we're having now during this heat spell. And there are definite advantages to not being static and by having genetic recombination and diversity. So, uh, and there's a lot of work being done right now, uh, looking exactly at those kinds of recombinations. Uh, Andy Walker, who's retiring from UC Davis this year, has devoted his entire career to looking at those kinds of factors. So, well, let's, we'll, we'll get back to your thread. 
that you were you were getting into there with uh, stressing stressing the vine to to sort of you know one of our jobs in managing the vineyard is to create the right kind of stress like we're training athletes um to to get more flavorful colorful fruit how how do you do that i mean what are the techniques that you can point to well right now one of the things we're doing in the vineyard today is uh, we are pulling leaves off of uh from around the cluster uh, we're just getting started into bloom right now here in the vineyard and okay. uh so the the grapevine if you can imagine this on the cane the grapevine opposite it has a leaf and right below it has a leaf called the subtending leaf and while those leaves are expanding and growing they are carbohydrate importers they're sucking up carbohydrate but once they become fully uh expanded they become carbohydrate exporters and it's no uh accident that right when the the cluster is ready to flower that's when the leaf opposite and subtending the cluster have become fully expanded and they're now going to put carbohydrate right into that cluster well what if you were to cruelly trick the the grapevine and pull those two important leaves right off right at the point of flowering and the grapevine goes oh, wait wait where, where, where's my pay where's my payback and uh then what happens is the, uh, the leaves up above <clears throat> have to recruit back down and the leaf, uh, the basal leaf below has to recruit up. And, but you still have a, a momentary carbohydrate deficiency that occurs. And uh, mm. uh, what happens is you have less successful flowering. You have what's called shatter. And most growers do not want a lot of shatter. And you can control this to some extent. Uh, but you want to have a little bit of shatter because then what happens is you have fewer berries per cluster, which means an open, more open cluster architecture, which means that when the berries grow, you have more uh, air motion going through the berries and solar penetration. And uh, so that's number. That's the most important moment. The next most important moment of winemaking is berry cell division. So if you can continue that momentary carbohydrate deficiency, into that point of berry cell division, that means you're going to have fewer, less division, fewer cells per berry means smaller berries. And all of us winemakers like smaller berries because you've got more skin to juice ratio and stuff like that. And uh, uh -huh. pardon me, my the uh, the drugs are kind of like making me a little bit loopy right now, which might make this even more fun. But uh, <laughs> I'll try to keep you on track, but you're doing great okay. so far. Yeah. And so uh, the next moment after that is berry cell expansion. And if you can limit berry cell expansion, smaller cells means also smaller berries. So that's kind of those three moments how, what we're trying to look at. So how uh, the second and third moments, how what techniques do you do to to do those to control those moments? Well, or, if you pull, or manage them or, you know, yeah, push them in the direction for winemaking. Yeah. Well, uh, I used to work, uh, I started a place called Flowers Vineyard and Winery out on the coast. And because it's on the coast, you get plenty of shatter anyway. So you never want to actually pull those leaves right before flowering. You do it actually right after flowering. And okay. uh, so you've already gotten your, your shatter because it's crappy weather out there in the springtime on the coast. Right. Uh, but now you've taken away that carbohydrate resource. So that is affecting berry cell division. Now, berry cell expansion occurs all the way through and up until into Eurasian. So it's a little harder to do that. So what we used to do out there is you can pull off those leaves opposite and subtending the cluster, but you leave the lateral on. And that lateral, uh, that's, that's a little shoot that comes out in the axillary uh the axillary bud opposite of the opposite of the cluster actually it can happen anywhere on a, on a grapevine but the lateral opposite right. of the cluster when that starts growing all those leaves that are expanding are carbohydrate importers they're carbo hogs and so if you're having that lateral sit there rather than taking it off during the berry development you're actually going to limit berry cell expansion and the really cool part is in places like at Flowers and at Manchester Ridge 
where I also make wine. It, 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 it is the ridge on the ocean in northern Mendocino County. And at 2,200 feet, it's really extreme. And wow. in a place like that, what you really need during the fourth most important moment of winemaking is verasion. Verasion requires a lot of energy because you're making anthocyanins and flavors and color and also sugar, which is the defect. Right. But all these other things are not, are uncoupled. They're, it's not the same biochemical pathway. So having a lateral, now that it's fully expanded those leaves during verasion, they're actually going to put energy back into the into the cluster right at the point where it really needs to get that verasion going and so laterals can actually serve as both a quality enhancer by reducing berry size but then increasing ability of of the vine to to ripen at grapes yeah and so that's kind of that's kind of vineyard magic right there that wow so is it uh you know to get real nitty-gritty do you just want that one lateral opposite the cluster on that first node or leaf leaf whatever that is? <laughs> the, well, that, that's, I don't have the terminology. But... That, that's the best place for competition. That's for sure. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Do you? I mean, ha, okay. So I, there's a. In addition to that, I, I've heard somewhere along the line about old leaves versus new leaves. Is that kind of what you're talking about? About while they're expanding versus while they're and they're sucking up carbohydrates versus when they start pushing it back in. Is that is that what that is talking about? Old leaves versus new leaves, and you know, leaves yeah. like leaving a certain number at the end of the shoot versus ones that are, uh, you know, closer to the cluster. Adam, you are very savvy. I haven't heard too many people talk about old leaves versus new leaves, and to even mention this means that you're way ahead of the game with most people. Old leaves. Uh, are not as efficient as young leaves are. In fact, they can have uh, just a fraction. Of, if So if total efficiency would be 100%, old leaves can be 20, 30, 40%, especially if they're also partly shaded by other leaves as well. Right. And in fact, right. some leaves can become saprophytic. They're, they're actually, uh, they're parasites if they're too shaded. Huh. And that's why if you look at a heavily shaded canopy and you reach in, you can pull out yellowing leaves because the grapevine is trying to get rid of those leaves. They're not, they're, they're respiring. They're, they're not photosynthesizing. So they're doing ag actually the opposite of what the grapevine really needs. And uh, older leaves just don't do as good of a job as, as young, new, fresh leaves do. And that's kind of like people too. But the good side <laughs> about people is that we have a lot of knowledge about what we're doing. And so we can help to regulate ourselves through hormonal control as leaves. So old leaves still provide a really important uh, hormonal control. So for instance, not producing abscisic acid, with, you know, dropping other leaves off. So it's very complex, but even though old leaves aren't as productive, they're still an important part of what's going on with the mind. Like people. Got it. <laughs> <clears throat> Got it. So, um, so if we were going to give a, a holistic picture of this this whole process during the growing season, what would you be looking for on your vine? Like what, what's a what's a perfect vine look like to you, I guess? Like how do we simplify this to to a more visual, you know, looking at the vine and, and what you want to see in terms of, you know, the length, the number of leaves, uh, you know, light penetration, you know, laterals, anything at all like that. What, what do you what do you want to see? Um, I, and I guess that depends on the vineyard as well. So, you know, take it however you want to take it. Yeah. Well, uh, <clears throat> from one region to another, uh, the vines aren't perfect. For instance, uh, in the Central Valley, laterals are not as important. And in fact, they can add to shading. So you may want to take those off, whereas on the coast, laterals are more important. But uh, in general, the perfect uh, grapevine is something that will have 11 to 14 leaves per cluster will have dappled uh, solar penetration. So a leaf layer number, that's if you take a little uh, a stick and you stick it through the canopy uh, and the number of leaves that you touch should be less than two leaves. Mm. Uh, and <clears throat> that the shoot, the shoots stop growing um, right shortly after you've gotten just enough leaves to ripen your clusters. 
So if your shoots are still growing into the fall and you have to do hedging, that's not uh, the perfect vine. In fact, it's easier mm -hmm. to say what is not a perfect vine than what is, but uh, a vine that How? grows out until uh, the shoot tips stop growing right about the time of erasion is, is perfect. How? How do you manage that in the vineyard if you if you do have a vigorous vine that that you you know is one of those that you're you're seeing tons of production uh, and and growth that you need to hedge into you know late fall? Yeah, well, there's a number of things you can do uh, uh, to harness excess vigor. Of course, you don't want to add uh, extra fertilizer. The single biggest contaminant in groundwater in California are nitrates from right. nitrogen fertilizer. In fact, it's estimated that 60% of uh, our groundwater has one form or another of uh, nitrogen pollution in it. Uh, so too much uh, fertilizer is not good. Also, not enough fertilizer is not good. When I send you right. that PowerPoint, I'll, uh, you'll, you'll see that I, I made that point on that. Uh, you... Right, that and and when you say not good, are you referring to uh, in terms of not enough fertilizer? Is that where you get into bad chemistry, in, when you get into the cellar where you're trying to make wine and you you don't have enough yan or or things like that? Exactly, and uh, yan of course is yeast available nitrogen. For those who uh, wouldn't know that, so uh, one does have to pay attention to that in the vineyard, and then again in the winery as well, and I. I'm not a big uh, proponent of using like diammonium phosphate or other forms of nitrogen to add to a must. I'd like for right. it to try to do its own thing. But right. if you do have really low yeast available nitrogen or yan, you do need to add some uh, nutrient supplements for the yeast. So uh, um, you can use cover crop to help to reduce vigor, the competition. You can use yeah. uh, devigorating rootstock uh, to help with the devigoration. So 420A is a good example of a devigorating rootstock. Hmm. Um, okay. You can look at vine density uh, and planting as another factor. Uh, you can look at early season water deficit. Uh, and that's another thing that's on my PowerPoint is if you can provide early season water deficit, then you're really going to help with uh, all kinds of quality factors for the vineyard and the winery and, uh, and the wine. Oh, so it's a, it's important. I mean, I think we're all soon in California heading to early season and late season and mid season water deficit, yeah. <laughs> unless we're tapping into some aquifer resources. But, um, so dry farming sounds like it could be a way to do that, assuming you, you, but can we talk about watering a little bit in irrigation when, when to water, like what, what are those moments that are important for watering? You know, I mean, generally, I guess, like, what what does it affect? When does the vine need what? And, you know, obviously, there's a whole range of areas that, you, like you're just saying, like, if you have a vigorous vine, you might want early season water deficit. Um, but maybe you don't have a vigorous vine. Maybe the opposite is true. You have old vines that are very low vigor, that kind of thing. What, what Can you talk a little bit about how water uh, is important at, at in the timing of it? Yeah, the single most important winemaking decision that you can make, winemaking decision, is when to start watering your vineyard. That That's hugely important. And if you water too early, you're going to increase your vegetative cycling. And recall that there's the two uh, different modes for the grapevine to use. It's photosynthate, vegetative, or reproductive yeah. strategy. So if you water too early, you're going to extend vegetative strategy and the grapevine won't want to do things like ripen its tannins because it's still thinking, hey, I've got all the water I need. I can still do this. I can keep making lumber. So you want to get the grapevine to stop thinking about doing wood production and start thinking about reproductive. Uh, huh. So uh, um, basically, you want to have essentially a... Uh, full water saturation up to and at about flowering. And then after that is when you want to start uh, uh, projecting a water deficit in a grapevine. And for those of you who are listening, uh, that would mean somewhere between 10 to 14 uh, negative bars using a, a pressure bomb. Uh, and for those of you growers out there who are not measuring those things, you probably should 
either get a pressure bomb or share one with neighbors, that kind of thing, and kind of figure out what is the most important moment for you to start watering based on something like that. Of course, there's lots of other uh, uh, materials and methods to uh, measure grapevine water status, like neutron probes or gypsum blocks, things like that. But my favorite uh, device for measuring uh, grapevine water status is a device called a, a grapevine and <laughs> and a shovel. And so you need to look for a diurnal fluctuation, which means that uh, in the morning, all your vines are very perky. They're looking really upright. You're, uh, they're, they're really like standing up. When, when you've seen a wilted plant, you know that that's not perky, right? So by the afternoon, if those vines are starting to look cansado, they're starting to kind of droop a little bit. Uh, yeah. Well, that may or may not be the right time to water because grapevines tend to outstrip by their evapotranspirative potential. They're, they're throwing out water out of their little uh, apertures, their stomata, their breathing apertures. Um, if in the next morning they're perking upright again, that means that there's plenty of water there. They just couldn't keep up during the day and then it's regenerated at night. And so it's not the right time to water. Uh, and you have to really watch that really closely. You have to spend time in your vineyard. You go out early in the morning and you see how perky your vines are. And then you go out in the afternoon and see how tired they are. And then late in the evening or early in the morning again, you want to look and see whether or not those vines are recovering. Uh, and of course, uh, there are rootstocks like that are riparia based, which is a, a water loving rootstock that mm. if you're looking at terrain fluctuation and you kind of miss that cutoff, then those particular grapevines like 5C or SO4 are going to not perform very well. So it's very tricky. You have to really get to know your vineyard pretty well. And I have a big advantage in living in the vineyard that I work with and, and watching it every day. I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now. <laughs> that is great. And uh, I, I, me too. I've planted our yard in Los Angeles as a vineyard. Wow. Um, <laughs> what kind of uh, varieties do you have in rootstocks? It's pretty cool. Well, great. So yeah, I planted the front yard vineyard with Syrah on Riparia Glory. Um, we huh? have heavy clay for about two feet, like just really heavy clay for about two feet. And then I think pretty much under that is just sand. Um, now, I, pl I wouldn't have done Riparia Glory if I'd known anything about what I was doing. Uh -huh. I, 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 because I'm, you know, and I, I was just about to get into this, which is, you know, I, I'm really concerned about planting vineyards at all that have to be irrigated at this point in California's history. Like right. I kind of want, I want to plant things that actually grow where they can grow with what's available without any, you know, without trying to, take resources that might soon become vital just for survival, first of all. Right. Um, but just, you know, be, for the sake of uh, having something that it thrives where it is with, with, with the climate that it's in rather than trying to, you know, give it a bunch of crutches to survive on. Um, right. So I, I probably, you know, so to correct for that, I planted the backyard with uh, Narodavala and uh, 1103P. Um, oh, so an Estevelis. I think that's Estevelis, right? Is that uh, eleven oh three? That's Paulson uh, cross. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, I think so. It's a little more drought tolerant, or, or significantly oh, more, more drought. Right. There, yeah, significantly more drought tolerant. Three hundred and sixty, one hundred and eighty degrees opposite. Riparia is right. totally <laughs> not, and then eleven oh three Paulson is uh, totally drought tolerant. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's yeah, and then I, I have a few vines that I you know just kind of scattered about uh, i have some sangiovese on like 5bb and and uh and some pinot that's still sort of holding on as a pergola trained over our pergola on i have no idea what uh because it was before i even you know knew anything yeah. about rootstock yeah um and then we have some a bunch of vines from seed as well and then some own wow. rooted like syrah and mission as well wow um, that's great yeah, just some fun stuff, you know, just trying to learn and see what does well. But the Syrah, strangely, has made some really incredible wine. And we've been, you know, what I found last year, and this is, you know, maybe an interesting question, was it it didn't, like, it got to a point in Verizon where it just wouldn't ripen any further. Like I, Like, I was checking bricks, like, every week, you know, I'd pull a berry, pull a berry here, pull a berry there. And for a month, like I, it just didn't change, like or more than a month, like two months. I finally picked it 
in late September because, you know, I was starting to see shriveled berries, but the bricks were still like 23 bricks. You know, it only gotten to 23 bricks. Uh-huh. And, and yeah, I don't know what was going on. I mean, I, you know, I had a friend who said, you know, well, maybe it's just because you're not watering. You know, it's like the vines are just sort of shutting down and, you know, weird things are happening because we're basically trying not to irrigate it and it's riparious. So I don't know. Who knows? Well, um, any thoughts? <laughs> yes. Um, for right. They're also young vines, too. Like this is their fifth leaf. So. So uh, a question. What is the periderm formation looking like around the time of erosion? Are you getting wood ripening around the time of erosion? Not really. I mean, we're these things, uh, you know, grow into December. I'm actually like wow. hedging them. Yeah. To, to be able to like make, force them into dormancy. I mean, it's, you know, we're in a sort of semi-coastal you know, Los Angeles center of the basin. So it's, you know, it's almost subtropical in a weird way here, you know, it's moist. It's yeah. And, and so I, I joke that we could almost get two crops off the vines. You know, like, well, they, you can in some places like India there, they get two crops. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you're in LA proper. You're not like over the hill, over the Santa Monica. Right. Mountains. No, it's like, yeah. we're, we're, we're just inland enough where it, you know, we get some good heat. Um, but it, we also get like an afternoon breeze because we're right down in the in the basin. We're in South LA, and so there are some like the Baldwin Hills sort of funnel the uh, the, the coastal breeze right across our yard every afternoon. Sounds and pretty it cools good. it down. Uh, it's lovely, yeah. So I thought it might be good for vines. You, you probably should buy some of your neighbors' uh, properties and knock down the houses and uh, plant them <laughs> to valuable uh, cultural stuff. I <laughs> I've already offered. Uh, I was rejected. Okay. All right. Uh, that. <laughs> we do <laughs> yeah i've been talking to the city about a vacant lot across the street but so far no no deal um <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> and i worry what price tag they might want for it but <laughs> yeah that's uh, yeah right well they've done that in napa for instance they've they've uh knocked down houses to uh get the the uh viticultural ground for valuable uh grapevines that you can get wow dollars a ton for yeah that's amazing yeah yeah I'd be happy if people just wanted to convert their lawns into vineyards. We could have a little Crenshaw AVA here. I'd be, I'd be, yeah, <laughs> I'd be thrilled and, with that. And they'd also probably be more water thrifty too, because you'd probably yeah. only need a fraction of the amount of water that a lawn does. So, absolutely, I, that's what I, that's my sales pitch. Okay. <laughs> uh, sign me up for uh, how I can help you to convince your neighbors. Okay, definitely. Uh, you know the guy that started La Crema? Um, he, he wants you to convert your yard into a vineyard. <laughs> um, uh, well, okay, where were we? <laughs> I apologize. Uh, we were talking about uh, verasion and uh, how right. that's really carbohydrate intensive as well. And hopefully right. your shoots will have stopped growing the shoot tips will have stopped growing at verasion. And ironically, once that happens, you can water about as much as you want because now you're not going to regenerate more vegetative uh, growth because your plant has completely cycled over from vegetative to reproductive strategy. Got and, it. And then you can give your vine all it needs to help finish photosynthesizing and producing all the yummy flavors, which might be an issue with your Syrah as well. So it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really, everything I do is to try to devigorate it, you know, so we've got big cover crop, you know, I don't irrigate, you know, I give it like when I feel like they're just going to collapse because it's riparia and we yeah. haven't watered and it's been a hundred degrees for two months, then I give it some water. But right. uh, beyond that, you know, I mean, we probably water two to four times a year and that's about it, you know, just a deep, heavy thing. And, and the, that heavy clay really holds on to it. Right. And so that's about it. Um, but yeah, I, well, what, what, uh, I, I'm, you, we were talking a little bit, um, well, before we, before I was going to mention yeast, you mentioned yeast, but before we get into the cellar, you, I, I'm sure pruning has a lot to do with this as well. Like you, you're going to need spacing and you, you want positions that aren't on top of each other and crowding each other. So you, right. that is going to help with the light penetration and yep. airflow and everything else as well. So you're, you, do you have any preferred, like what, can you talk about your, your home vineyard there? What, what are you growing and kind of rootstock and, you know, you're, you're watering and, and trellising and that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I'm using what's called a modified double guillot system, G-U-I-O-T. And okay. uh, um, 
rather than using uh, straight canes across the fruiting wire, I used an arched cane. Uh, and that's because the middle of the cane has what's called cane weakness. Uh, you don't get as much growth in that middle. And that's because the grapevine is a climbing animal. And so it has what's called apical dominance. Uh, and so the end of your cane that you leave behind uh, for that year is going to have the strongest growth on it. There, well, there's two kinds of dominance, actually. There's apical dominance, which is the end of the cane, and sorosync dominance, which is where all the plumbing is around the head of the grapevine. So if you can imagine, uh, for our listeners, uh, the grapevine has a head, which is... Uh, where it's all pruned down to that one head and two canes coming out of that head. Every year you cut back to two new canes, not using the ones from before. If you use uh, canes from previous years, that becomes a cordon. And so that's a, a cordon trained spur prune, which is not my favorite, but it works really well for some varietals and in some places. But out on the coast where I live, you want to do cane pruning, which is because if you're just doing cordon trained spur pruned, if you're just pruning back to two buds, those two buds that you prune back to have seen the worst and crappiest weather and are going to be less bud fruitful. They're going to have less fruit attached to them. But the cane that you select rather than just two buds, if you take 10 or 12 buds, then all of those buds are going to be more fruitful and you're going to get better fruit quality. And so you mm. arch the cane so that you make the grapevine think, oh, this top part, this middle of the, the cane that's arched, that's the highest part of the vine. So let's push that stronger. And that, uh, to some extent, beats back mid-cane weakness. And then, yeah, and then the other thing we do, instead of two renewal spurs for the next year, I actually have short canes. They're shorties. And you put those out <laughs> into the middle of the arch. And so those short canes... The ends of the short canes have apical dominance and they'll push up into the into the arch. And so now instead of in one space, one area, you just have one shoot that's on the arch. You now have two shoots because you got the one that's underneath it. And uh, you can now choose which one of those two shoots is more fertile and stronger. And so you don't need both of those shoots in there. So you have to take away one, but then you'll still have better quality wine because you have a stronger shoot, not a weak shoot, and you're going to ripen your clusters a lot better. So that's the way uh, we're doing it here. And, and it's more labor intensive and, and, and harder to do. You need more skilled people, but it's more. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. That, that is that you just described things that I, I always wondered about. And I always thought, you know, the main advantage was, um, because I didn't know all of this other stuff that you just described, but I always thought, uh, and maybe you can disabuse me of this idea, but I thought it, uh, the cane versus sprue, the spur pruning would also give you an advantage with uh, like diseases and mil you know, fungal pressures as well, because you, you're starting afresh with fresh wood every year, as opposed to old wood that will house spores and things. Quite so. Yes. Okay, that's also an advantage. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, yeah. How and and you also, I, you know, I want to give you a little chance to talk about Marshall, for example. But you're you're working with old vines, and um, I'm wondering how that fits into you know your overall approach to wine and winemaking. Uh, why did you choose those? What what you know? Since we're in the vineyard, can you talk about why you like to work with the old vines? Well, all the old vines that I work with, I did not seek them out. I didn't choose them. They chose me. And so I really took that as kind of a mission. And of course, I, I named it after my wife and my business partner's wife, Mara and Michelle. So Marcel, which also in French means a little step up. Uh, nice. So, um, oh boy, old vines are really important uh, to us genetically. Um and old vines tend to hold a lot of wisdom in their in their bones, in their in their roots and and trunks, and uh, they know how to regulate themselves. Old vines have seen all of it. They've seen drought and fire and flood and just about everything you could imagine. And they're really good at hormonally regulating themselves. Uh, like a young vine will just kill itself with uh, a lot of vigorous growth and evapotranspiration potential, and it'll just crash and burn. Mm. But old vines won't necessarily do that. Uh, 
vines are kind of like people. Um, when you've got a young vine, or let's say you've got a young kid, your little daughter, and she's she's just two or three years old, you're not going to put a big backpack on her. You're going to give her a little Hello Kitty backpack and put a sandwich in it and then go for a hike together. And <clears throat> as, your, <laughs> as your kid gets older, you can actually start you know, putting a water bottle in there and some other things. And then they get to be teenagers and you can start loading them up with your, the, the full, uh, internal frame Kelty backpack and go, go iron skillet. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, as people get older, they can do more stuff, but when they're really young, the, when vines are really young, you have to admire them for their brightness and their joyfulness and liveliness. And so little kids are a marvel because they're just so vivacious and young vines can be very fruity and, and vivacious and you appreciate them for that. But as vines and people get older, they can do more work. And when they're in the prime of their life, they're really doing the heavy lifting. But as vines get older, they decline in productivity, but at the same time too, they know how to conserve. They know how to regulate themselves. And there's a lot we can learn from old vines and old people about how they conduct themselves and their lives and the wisdom that exists in their bones or their roots. And so I'm a big believer in old vines and old people. And of course, I'm, I'm now an old people. So I got the, a couple of, a few years ago, World of Pinot anointed me as a pioneer of Pinot. And all that means now is I'm just an old fart. So <laughs> was that when you knew that you were old when they did that? Yeah. What was the uh, moment? <laughs> yeah, I think that was pro- that was the moment when I said, damn, I must be getting old. Um, <clears throat> I'm not when, old when yet, but I'm getting there. Right, right. You, when you get uh, designated a pioneer of something, you must be getting close to something. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, well, okay. So I, I will bring us back. You mentioned, and and we don't have to go in depth into this, but I did want to, you know, you you are known as a innovative winemaker, and and I, you know, all of this then translates to the cellar, and I wondered if you wanted to to get into that. I know that you have some thoughts about yeast. I think we were talking about stress uh, and stress in relation to yeast, if I'm correct, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but if anything, you want to jump at any point, you want to jump in and then I'll start asking more questions. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So um, I'm a a believer in wild or uninoculated uh, fermentations. Mm -hmm. And the big, there's two big differences between inoculated and uninoculated fermentations. The first is that uh, inoculated fermentations are conducted basically by one organism, whereas wild fermentations are conducted by a whole series of different organisms, successionally speaking. And the second thing is that when you're inoculating, you're adding, you know, 10 to the sixth cells per milliliter, and the carrying capacity of wine is 10 to the eighth cells per milliliter. So you're only asking for about 100 times replication, which is not all that, it sounds like a lot, but it's not all that much because what if you're starting with three cells per milliliter and you're still having to go to 10 to the eighth cells per milliliter? You're asking for millions of replications. That's mm. pretty significant. And that allows for you to have a lot more stress responses from your yeast. So, uh, and that also allows for your organismal succession to proceed in a way that really increases complexity of your wine. So uh, it's kind of like um, after you have a forest fire, you've got a barren patch of ground, right? And some grass seeds might blow in and then germinate. And those are the first seeds that, that colonize the soil. They create more tilt to the soil and water holding capacity and organic matter. And then a bird flies in to eat the now ripening grass seeds. And while it's there, it deposits a bush seed with its own form of fertilizer. And then that grows up to create even more tilt to the soil and water holding capacity and more importantly, shade so that then an acorn falls into that shade. And then after thousands of years, you've got the the, uh, prime species of your biome, which in our neck of the woods is redwoods. Well, that kind of Mm. organismal succession occurs in about a 10 day period of time in a vat of wine and you can actually see it under the microscope. Uh, They're they're not redwoods, but you have to have a microscope. (laughs) The very first yeast that colonizes a cold uh, must or juice 
might be a cryogenic or cold-loving yeast like Klekera. Klekera is a apiculate yeast, so it's real easy to see. It's got two pointy little ends. It looks like a very badly hand-rolled uh, cigarette. Uh, having raised six kids in West Sonoma County, I know what those look like. So, <laughs> so uh, it it starts growing up, and uh, it's cold-loving, but its metabolism warms up the must a little bit, and it also creates carbon dioxide gas so that the bad guys, vinegar bacteria, don't get in. And as it dies off at about 2% alcohol, it's prepared the way for the next yeast, which might be something like Pickia. And then Pickia grows up. At, but as that Klekera, the first yeast, dies out, it produces a compound that can smell of smoked meats or roasted venison, 4-ethylguayacol. And that, uh, I love getting just a little bit of that smell in, in my red wines in particular. And so the next yeast, as it grows up, it produces compounds that might smell of, you know, forest floor, mushroom, and you go, each yeast, as it dies out, is producing these compounds that smell and taste really good until you get to Saccharomyces, the finishing yeast, which can produce compounds like that smell of rose petals or violets, uh, 4-ethyl phenethanol, uh, for reasons that we don't have time to get into now, biochemistry. But uh, trust me that those things exist. And the whole point of being a winemaker is not trying to make wine so that the consumer can say, oh, this is 4-ethyl phenethanol. You know, you just right. you just want to make a wine that the, the taster says, wow, this is really complex and delicious. Our job as winemakers is to understand the language of winemaking, the, the science or the art. Uh, the, well, the science of winemaking, it's like my, my first major in college was music. And uh, when you study music, you study the science or the language of music. You study call and response, timbre, meter, pitch, tone. That's what goes into you, the science or the language. What comes out is the art. So we as winemakers need to understand the language of wine, which is the language of yeast cell biology and, and vine physiology, so that we can produce wines that the consumer will say, wow, this is really flavorful, or this, this really has great texture. That's really well said. Um, what a, and, and I am conscious of your time and you know, want to just ask at this point, what, what is your vision for your wine? And I mean, how do, how do you, how would you describe your approach or what you, what do you want to do with wine at this point? Well, um, I think at this point, I would say, what does wine want to do with me? Um, wine Great has, question. wine has led me to making Marshall, which is dedicated to ancient vines. And the wine has led me to speak to the language of the land and help to translate that. Wine has led me to, in a way, my own little bit of immortality because um, I'm going to be dust in the wind in a few more years. But the language of the land is eternal. It's, um, it's the rocks and the sun and the wind and the rain. Those things will last forever. And it is an honor and a privilege and also a great responsibility for me to be a conduit of the voice of the land. And if I don't sit and really listen to what it is that the land wants to say, I may miss that opportunity. Because who are we as mortals to offer even one letter to the voice of the land without first listening very carefully to it for long years at a time and really trying to understand what it is trying to say. So we become servants of the land in our jobs as winemakers. And I, I don't have a vision for the land. The land has a vision for me. And lately it's bringing forward these ancient vines so that they can speak m more purely and clearly. Oh, that's really beautifully said. I, I wish uh, more people felt that way and thought that way. It seems not the norm. It seems like there's so much human ego and intention in, in wine, uh, in, the main, in the mainstream approach to wine. Um, I think... That is a lovely, beautiful thing. I wish we could end on that, but I want to end on giving you a chance to talk about your Marshall and anything else that you're doing. If you want to, you know, any way that people can can taste what you are making and how you're doing those translations. Well, uh, the best way to get a hold of Marshall wines, we are not readily available. Most of my wines, I'm only making between 50 and 150 cases of each wine. 
So there's just not very much of it to go around. So the best way to find my wines is at marshellwines.com. That's M-A-R-C-H-E-L-L-E wines.com. And sign up for either our mailing list or wine club, because a lot of the wines that I make are pretty unique. Uh, They are very expressive. I use, you know, I've I've done 68 vintages uh, across five continents. And I didn't start when I was like one year old, but I've sometimes done two or three vintages a year and I've learned a lot. And so my winemaking is very informed by that. And it's very informed by the fact that I don't really know a whole lot. I'm really allowing the wines to tell me what it is that they want and need. And the more I learn, the more I understand that I just really need to shut up and listen to (laughs) what's going on. And so my wines are all about texture uh, and smoothness. Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have the biggest Pinot in the room uh, when you get a bunch of wines (laughs) together. Uh, But uh, hopefully my wines have grace and uh, not power, but kind of power, but then kind of almost levitating and defying gravity. That's what a good Pinot should be able to do, have both power and be able to levitate. So that's kind of what I'm looking for in my wines. And and I want to make wines that my wife and my family love to drink and my friends, because that's the best use of my wines is a celebration of the land and the people whom I love. And hopefully people who share that with their loved ones will feel that. I love that. That sounds, uh, yeah. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, and thank you for asking about, you know, what I'm doing too. I really appreciate that. Well, I, as a fellow winemaker, I know you feel many of these things that we discussed. And one of your yeah. great joys, I'm sure, is is opening a bottle of your wine with your friends and family. That's the highest use yeah. of, of our wines that we make. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah. Uh, that's I, I mean my approach sounds very similar to your approach actually Good show. um yeah thank you so much thank you gray i really really appreciate talking to you and and you uh, honestly just were a huge wealth of I, I know helpful information for so many people just by the things that you just said so thank you well adam thank you for telling the stories of wine this is something that's a skill that is needed in our industry and and you're doing it mm-hmm.